Thank you, team, for leading us. Uh, you know, so much of church life together is uh, like family in any family in a broken world. It's highs, it's lows, it's fun, it's throwing bodies of teenagers across the lake when they ask for it, and enjoying that. Uh, it is also sad, it is hard, it's all of that together. Our, our church family has experienced all that together, and you've gotten some tastes of that already just this morning. We've experienced all that just within the last few days, within the last couple of weeks, as we serve in our community, as we have fun together, and as we also deal with really hard stuff. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer here in just a moment, but before we do, I've got one item of family business to mention. Some of you have heard, many of you probably not. Uh, one of our long-term attenders, Phil Romero, passed away uh, last night after a battle with some health issues that he was having that was somewhat sudden and somewhat unexpected. And there will be um, certainly information coming out soon on a service that we will have for Phil here uh, probably within the next couple weeks. So check the bulletin, check our, our Facebook page. Uh, come Sunday mornings, we'll announce it uh, when those plans are put together. I have to say, um, to see the way our church body was in action, a number of us were actually together at a party last night when this happened and news uh, broke, and so to see several people just kind of jump in and take care of stuff, um, Ann Nickerson, Jim Barclay, uh, Roger and, and, and uh, Debbie Hadley, Elizabeth Greeno, there were so many people that were just like jumping in to say, what can we do to help? And there were people at the hospital um, with Lita, um, now a widow, uh, standing by the bedside praying with her uh, shortly after it happened. There were other people caring for people, just... That means so much to me personally to see the church be the church and just say like, we don't have answers, but we're just jumping in and we're walking toward one another because that's what families do. And so I want to pray for us right now as a church family um, to continue to um, just for God to, to work within our midst. And I just invite you to, uh, to join me in that. Father God, we come before you this morning with, um, I certainly come before you with so many mixed emotions um, and all of them are good and right. Um, excitement, uh, fun, the joy of being able to reach through a local school yesterday with several members of this church to connect with people in our community and make a positive difference, to, to demonstrate the gospel in action and, and pray that that would lead to opportunities to explain the gospel in words. What a joy just to be able to serve. Uh, what a joy to have fun at uh, things like water ski camp and family camp and be able to just celebrate the things that we've done as a church family together these last couple of weeks. What heartache when um, an unexpected death occurs and people surround one another in love in a time of need. Um, all of this is life in a broken world. All of this is ordained by you. It is under your sovereign care. And as you express to us your love and affection in the midst of our deepest needs and as you sent your son to die for us to meet our deepest needs. I pray, Father God, that those of us in this church would embody the gospel by continuing to celebrate, uh, to rejoice, as you say in your word, with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to do all of that sometimes at the same time. So Father God, I pray that you would help us to see the opportunities around us at all times, to be agents of the gospel, uh, those who represent who you are and who you have been to us. Giver of sight to the blind, we pray that you would help us to see clearly who you are so that we can reflect you appropriately. We pray that you would help us, first of all, to know the hope that you have called us to, that we have a great hope that transcends our current circumstances that cannot be taken away. I, I pray that we would see that clearly enough that it would affect the way we respond to our current circumstances and that a bit of eternity would get brought into time and heaven brought into earth as we respond in joys and in sorrows. We pray that you would help us to see the riches of the glorious inheritance you have prepared for us. 
God, teach us as a people to long for you and to be in your presence more than we long for anything else on this earth, such that that too may shape the way that we interact with everybody around us at work, at school, at home, in our church. And lastly, Father, I pray that you would help us to know the surpassing greatness of your power toward us in Christ Jesus. You tell us in your word that that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us right now. God, sometimes we don't see that, we don't feel that. But your power to conquer sin, your power to help us sustain through things that we don't think we can sustain through until that day when we get home and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That is your power in us. God, help us see that. That we would be a people who continue to faithfully pursue you no matter what happens, thus shining the light through our example on our great Savior. God, we're asking for big things that we don't have within ourselves much of the time. And so we ask that you would reveal yourself fully to those uh, who are figuring you out, perhaps for the first time, Uh, those who have questions about who you are and and who are trying to understand God, I pray, Father God, that you would reveal yourself clearly to them in a way that will make sense to them, that you would reveal yourself to those of us who already know you and follow you but desperately need to see you more clearly because so often we just see ourselves in our circumstances. God, even now as we open your word, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that would change us For our good and for your glory, we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for praying with me and just for being the church together. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it to Ephesians chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you uh, don't have one with you, you're free to uh, use one of the Bibles in the racks in the pew in front of you. Uh, I feel um, strangely and for no real good reason compelled to point out that those Bibles were put in those racks and those pews before the age of smartphones. Um, Nowadays, it's like if people don't have a Bible, they just Google one, right, on your phone. It's right there. So however you get to a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab one. Uh, All roads are just fine. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, This past week, our elders met, uh, as we do um, regularly here at Harvest, and one of the things we do in our meetings is we pray. We pray for you guys, we pray for our church, we pray for individuals by name, um, those that are members of our church, and specifically those that we know have particular issues facing them right now. Uh, One particular name that came up in this past elder meeting was uh, the name of somebody that none of us in the room actually knew all that well. Um, hadn't really been in contact with this person for quite some time, really had absolutely no idea what their current circumstances were or what they might be facing, and therefore maybe what to pray for. And if you're a Christian, I guess I'd like to ask you a question. If you've been in a situation like that, how do you pray? Here's a person, for for whatever reason, you're going to pray for them, but you really don't know anything about them, what they may be needing right now. How do you pray? As followers of Jesus, um, the idea of praying for other people is fairly common. That's not a new idea to to many of us that have been church-going Christians for a while. But often our first instinct is to pray for, you know, specific circumstances in their life. If there's a need, we pray that God would meet it, which is great, by the way. It's a wonderful way to pray. But what if you don't know the circumstances? How do you pray for someone when you don't know what to pray? Well, thankfully, I had this morning's passage fresh in my mind because I'd been studying it all week in preparation for this morning. And so I want to walk you through how the Bible led me, at least, to pray for this particular individual because I found myself greatly helped by the passage uh, that Roger just read for us a few minutes ago. 
We're actually in a series right now of, of six different sermons. This is number four of six, where we're looking at different prayers in the Bible. Three from the Old Testament, three uh, from the New Testament. And the reason we're looking at these is for models as to how we should pray ourselves. Because no matter how um, comfortable you feel as someone who is praying, most of us wouldn't call, uh, consider ourselves wonderful masters of, of prayer. And even if we do know uh, somewhat of how to pray, we can always learn more. There is such a variety of different kinds of prayer modeled in the Bible. And so the purpose of looking at these six passages is to really just kind of put some some tools in our tool belts to give us some models for how to pray. So we've already seen three prayers from the Old Testament, a prayer of praise in 1 Samuel, two, a prayer of, of corporate confession, confessing sin as a member of and on behalf of all of God's people. Uh, and then last week we saw a prayer of lament in Psalms 42 and 43 as a model of how to speak God's truths to ourselves in prayer. Today we jump to the New Testament and we see a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for Christians in the first century city of Ephesus uh, in what is now modern day Turkey. The, the prayer that we're going to look at here in just a moment is not actually in reference to their specific situation or any particular issue that those people were facing at that time. It's rather a general prayer. It, it, is, it is in reference to their salvation and the universal needs that they have and that all Christians have at all times. So it's a wonderful model of not only how to pray for yourself or someone else, but it's a great model of how to pray when you don't know what else to pray for. So if you're in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, I want us to notice a couple of things about this passage. First, we're going to see sort of the heart of what the prayer is. And having sort of told us what the prayer is all about, he, the Apostle Paul then sort of unpacks it along three more specific lines. And so we're going to look for a few minutes at, at the, sort of the core of what, what, what is being prayed for here. And then we're going to kind of see how to a little more practically flesh this out perhaps in prayer. He starts in verses 17 and 18 with the big uh, picture of what this prayer is. Just backing up a little bit to verse 15 so that we're not jumping in the middle of a sentence. He tells them, uh, I, for this reason, because I've heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's not in this city. He's been there. He actually spent quite a lot of time there. He started this church. He knows a lot of these people personally, but he's now moved on. He's traveling elsewhere, and he's writing a letter back to them saying, I haven't forgotten you guys. In fact, when I remember you, I pray for you. And the rest of the passage is, here's how I pray for you guys, whom I know and I love. Verse 17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I pray that you would know. Dot, dot, dot. Now, before we go on to the dot, 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 that's the three parts that he unpacks it on. Let's stop and realize what he is, what he is saying here, what he's modeling about how to pray for people. He asks that they would have a um, common first century phrase, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Modern day English. He's praying for a revealing of knowledge about, about God. He's praying that these Christians would really get God, that they, that they would see God even more clearly than they see him now, that they would understand God more fully than they understand him today. That's the essence 
of the prayer. That's the heart of what this prayer is. It's a prayer that Christians would have insight into who God is. That's what the word wisdom means in the Bible. It's kind of like insight into the way the world really works. Unwise people just sort of go along with the flow and they don't really understand what's happening to them. They just sort of go through life. Wise people in the Bible are people that understand how things work and so they're able to anticipate and respond accordingly. And here he's, he's praying for wisdom with regard to God that, that, that Christians would perceive, would have insight into who God is and how their salvation is operating in their life right now. It is possible to be an unwise Christian, somebody who follows Jesus and loves Jesus, but not, just not be very wise, not be very insightful about who God is and what he's doing at any given moment, what he's doing in my life right now. It's very possible to go through life without really thinking much about how my salvation impacts what I'm facing right now or without perceiving the operating of God's spirit or the functioning of the eternal life that he's already given me and how that plays out in this circumstance right now. This is a prayer that that Christians would see those things, that, that we'd be fully alive to who God is in this moment right now, responding to him appropriately. And in short, this is a prayer for perspective, for perspective that we would see, that we would understand. And, and notice, too, that it's not just an intellectual prayer. Uh, it involves what we know and believe, but it doesn't stop here. This is kind of a whole person thing. He said at the beginning of verse 18, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or the eyes of your heart open. Uh, what is he talking about there? What does he mean by the word heart? And if you're familiar with the Bible, that's, that's probably not a new idea. The, the heart in the Bible refers not just to our emotions. That's kind of how we use the word today. We talk about the head versus the heart, you know, what I think versus what I feel. And that's fine, but the Bible has a bit of a different idea. It's, in, in fact, it's a bigger idea. The heart in the Bible actually encompasses your mind and your emotions and your will. It's kind of like when the Bible talks about the heart, it's like this is the core of who we are as people. This is what we believe most and we feel most strongly and what's driving our actions because of our core identity. When you get to that level, that's what the Bible calls the heart. And it's at that level that the Apostle Paul prays that these Christians would perceive God clearly, deep down in the core of our beings. This is a prayer that we would not only understand God accurately, but that we would experience him appropriately and live for him in response completely because we get God deep down inside like never before. Many people know a lot about God. And it's especially true in a church like ours where we're here at Harvest, we value God's truth and God's word so highly, which is a wonderful thing. It is a great and glorious thing. A lot of people come here because they sense that there's a commitment to to the unchanging truth of God's word in the midst of a a changing world around us. And that is true. That is who we are. And that's who we want to continue to be. By God's grace, may we always be that. We never want to lose that. But we also don't want to just be limited to it. Our purpose as a church isn't just to be right about God insofar as we can we also want to actually experience the knowledge of God. In fact, the prayer emphasizes that the goal of knowing God rightly is to experience him appropriately and then live for him 
fully. And so the prayer is not just that we would get information right, it starts there, but that this information would drive down to the heart, the very core of our beings. And let me notice, uh, point out one final thing here. I've already forgotten to advance a slide. So he starts praying that, that we would have perspective, that the eyes of our hearts would open. But let me just point out one more thing. It seems obvious, but the longer I thought about it, the more important I thought it was to mention. that this. Notice who this prayer is, is to. What the prayer is for, it's for perspective, the core of our beings. But notice who the prayer is to. It's to God. It's a prayer. And if you're looking at me with raised eyebrows going, duh... I wouldn't blame you, but, but, but here's the point of, of pointing that out. This is something the Bible is modeling that we should ask God for. Uh, in other words, he, he prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. This is something he's coming to God for. Would you open the eyes of our hearts? At the end of the day, this kind of perspective we're talking about, like seeing God rightly deep down in who we are, is not at the end of the day something you and I go work on. I gotta work on my perspective. I'm gonna go work on seeing God more clearly. I wonder how I can do that. I mean, maybe there are some things we can do to see God more clearly, and we should do them. It is certainly true that God uses many circumstances in my life to help me see him more clearly, but the point of this is that at the end of the day, it is only God who can remove are blinders. Who can, it is only God who can widen a person's perspective enough that we really perceive God to be who he is. We see him as true and as right and as beautiful. That's why this is a prayer. This is something we ask God for. We can't make it happen to ourselves. We definitely can't make it happen to other people as much as sometimes we would like to try. Right? And what, what's being described here is something I think all of us know intuitively in working with other people, especially if you've been a parent. Uh, many of us are raising kids right now or we have raised kids. And you know that experience. Like you can't, at the end of the day, really make your kids do what you want them to do, can you? <laughs> especially the older they get and the smarter they get. Turkeys. <laughs> you can influence them, you can encourage them, you can discipline them. But at the end of the day, you can't make somebody choose the right thing, even if you know it's right. That's part of what drives us crazy as parents, right? We love our kids. It's like, as somebody described to my wife and I when our first child was born, it's like, you know, becoming a parent is like giving your heart permission to beat outside of your own body. <laughs> I mean, you are so invested in that person because you love them, but they have their own life and they make their own choices. And sometimes those choices break our hearts. As, as parents who love and follow Jesus, one of our greatest hopes is that our kids will come to love and follow Jesus. And so we try to teach them God's truth um, as best we can. Hopefully, by God's grace, we model what it looks like to know and follow Jesus so that hopefully they will see that. And we often spend extensive energy trying to protect our kids from hostile influences that will um, kind of warp their ways of thinking or introduce them to unhealthy thought patterns of life. And parents should do all of these things, especially as our kids are younger, of course. But part of the stress is that we know deep down, no matter how much we teach, no matter how much we try to model, no matter how much we try to protect, we can't coerce our kids to love Jesus. We can't make it happen. Only God can open the eyes of our kids' hearts. So parents... Pray with all the fervent passion of a parent that that would happen. 
because that's something that only God at the end of the day can do. By the way, that doesn't just apply to parents or grandparents who have young kids or grandkids in their homes. So many of us have adult children, some of whom are trying to follow Jesus and some of whom are not, and we're excited about it or worried about it or whatever. We continue to pray, God, would you open the eyes of the heart so that they can see you truly? This is something that only he can do. As my own kids move into young adulthood, this passage challenges me to continue praying for them, that in every challenge my son and my daughter face, every situation of anxiety that is confronting them, that they would see God clearly, love and trust him completely and follow him fully. By the way, I can say to all kids, including mine, pray for your mom and dad this way too. (laughs) We need it desperately, that God would open the eyes of our hearts. So this is a prayer, that God would give us perspective. So, so how do you pray then that way? If that's the big picture prayer, what, how do you put that into practice? If I was to pray this way, what might that look like? Well, fortunately, the prayer doesn't end here. Over the next few verses, the Apostle Paul models what it looks like to pray this prayer by kind of unpacking it along three more specific lines or three specific requests. He says, here's three ways I'm gonna pray that, that, that you guys would see God at the core of your beings more clearly. The first is that you would know God's hope The second is that you would know the riches of God's inheritance. The third is that you would know God's power that is at work within you. Let's take a look briefly at each of them in turn. I interrupted in the middle of a sentence a moment ago, in the middle of a verse, verse 18. Let's pick it up now and continue. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called you? That's what I pray, Christians, friend, family member, that you would know. What is he talking about with hope? We've been around our church for a while. We've run across this before. You know that in the Bible, kind of like the word heart, the word hope has a very specific meaning in the Bible. Um, It's not being hopeful the way that we talk about it today, like I hope this is going to work out, but I'm not really sure. It's actually just the opposite. Hope is like, It's a settled confidence because you're absolutely sure about a certain future. Like, I know for sure I'm going to Hawaii next month. So right now, I'm experiencing excitement about that. (laughs) It's not like, well, I hope I go. Like, I paid for my time. I better go, right? (laughs) I'm going, and I'm excited about it. That's kind of a little bit more like what the Bible means with hope. And so what, what this prayer is that, is, is a prayer that, that God has given us apparently a, a hope, a certain future that actually affects our, our mental and emotional state right now because we're so sure of what's coming. And that mental and emotional state, that peace, that confidence, because of a sure future, that's what the Bible calls hope. That's the first thing he prays for his fellow Christians, that you would see that kind of hope, that you'd experience that kind of hope deeply at the core of your being. It's living my now in light of my eternity. And where does that kind of hope come from? What does it look like to develop that kind of hope? Fortunately, the book of Ephesians has already talked about that earlier in the chapter. And so for a moment, just to get this idea of hope a little more firmly in our heads and and how we might pray it, I want us to keep a mental finger in in verse 18, and we're going to back up to earlier in chapter 1. And in the process of seeing how this hope thing works, we're going to run into one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. I love this word. 
It's a word that automatically produces a response in my mind and my emotions at the mere mention of the word. I hear it, and no matter what I'm thinking and feeling, it sort of immediately kind of transports me beyond what I'm currently thinking and processing. And it gives me a sense of stability, peace, and joy, no matter what is happening around me. It's a life-giving word, and it's the word predestination. And I'm serious. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. Love, grace, salvation. I don't know, I could have guessed a lot of words. Pre- really? Yes, actually predestination. Now, I've been around long enough um, to know that that's a word that produces many different reactions amongst many Christians. Some people have no idea what it means and they don't particularly care to know. Um, others, it just, it, it sounds sort of confusing. It, it, it sounds kind of, it's like, it sounds like a big kind of philosophical word and it conjures up images of like theological debates and confusion over like, how does God's sovereignty interact with man's free will? And like, ooh, let's bend our minds around that. And so Sometimes we're not real excited when we hear the word. It's interesting that the Bible never asks that question when it mentions the word. The Bible doesn't want us to go there. That's where we often go, but um, the Bible goes somewhere else with it. Some people can even actually be hostile to the word. It's an uncomfortable word to many Christians, and I get that. I get why. Um, Perhaps it's because in their experience, a word like predestination has been associated with either wrong ideas about God or wrong attitudes toward other people and we reject those as we rightly should and so we're just uncomfortable with the word i understand all of that but the apostle paul prays that we would know in a whole person way our hope and he's already described earlier in this chapter how hope works for the christian and it's all around god's work in and through us before we were even there back up to chapter one of ephesians verse four Three different times in this passage, predestination is mentioned, twice explicitly with the word, once without the word. The first is in verse four, where he says, um, I'll back up to verse three to catch the whole sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's pretty awesome. Praise be to God. He's given us so much incredible rich blessings. What's the first blessing he mentions? Predestination. Look at this, verse four. Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Whoa, whoa, just just stop and think about that for a minute. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Spend a few minutes trying to wrap your mind around that. I've spent lots of time in my life trying to wrap my mind around it. It's always exhilarating. It's always fun. I don't think I've ever fully succeeded. Like, I've I've got that one now. It's just, it constantly blows my mind to think about what is being so clearly said here. This, This tells me that my salvation is not something I brought about. It isn't. It it's a pure act of God's grace. Now, we, we often, as people, don't experience it that way. It, it feels like God is beckoning us home, and we eventually come to realize the truth of that and our need to repent, and so we choose to repent. It feels like God's got a part to play, and I've got a part to play, and sort of a 50-50 deal. If I'm a Christian, it kind of seems like God did something, and I did something, and it's only after you become a Christian you find out, yeah, that's just how it felt. It's not actually how it worked. 
I come to find out that my salvation did not come into being the first time I repented of my sins and followed Jesus Christ. My salvation came into being before there was a me to be saved. In fact, before there was anybody to be saved. In fact, before there was even a world for anybody to be in to be saved. This was a done deal in the heart and mind of God before anything existed. That's huge. And he goes on, verse 5, the second mention of it, this time using the word explicitly. He not only chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, but in love, God's love for us, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This means that that God predestined, the word just means he determined my destiny pre-me, before. He determined beforehand how this was going to end up. He predestined me, and his gracious choice was that I, unworthy, sinful me, would be adopted as a beloved child because of the work of Jesus Christ. That God would not just have servants and he would be the cosmic master. That he would not just have worshipers and he would be the cosmic deity, although we are God's servants and we are his worshipers, but much more than that. This glorious truth in the Bible says out of love, God also wanted to adopt us as daughters and sons the way a loving father cares for his own family. And this was settled in the heart and mind of God before we even were Jesus Christ lived the perfectly righteous life I should have lived in my place. And then he died the sinner's death I deserve to die also in my place. And then he rose to eternal life, an exalted and beloved son forever. And the great glory of the gospel message is that you and I come to share in his inheritance as God's perfect glorious son when we have repented of our sins and embraced Christ as our Savior King. The Bible teaches there's only one way for sinners like this to be welcomed by our perfectly holy God, not just as worshipers, but as sons and daughters. And that one way is through Jesus Christ. That's why he says he chose us in him. He chose us in Christ. That means by means of what Christ did. No matter who you are today, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God has provided Jesus as the way you can be welcomed home as a treasured child for all eternity. He's calling you to repent of your sin and come find life. If you have questions about what that means or how that works, I would invite you to talk with us. Myself, some of our church leaders are gonna be down front here right after the service. We'd love to get together, have a cup of coffee, sit down here and answer your questions and just help you figure out what it means to walk with Jesus and find that kind of a welcome. This is the hope, the Bible says. If you've given your life to Christ, you have that hope of the welcome of being a son and daughter, and it was settled before you were even there. This all leads us to the second request. These first two sort of go together, this idea of hope, and then the second idea of of inheritance go together. So if you'll kind of keep a, a mental finger, we'll jump back to verse 18 where we were just a moment ago. He prays not only that we would know God's hope, but that we would also know our inheritance. 
finish out verse 18. Uh, I pray that you would know the hope to which he has called you and that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is picking up right from this idea of being sons and daughters. Well, sons and daughters, even in our day and age, in our culture, but especially back then, the sons and the daughters inherited um, everything from the previous generation. They inherited the family name, they inherited the family property and wealth and everything and position in society. They, this was all passed down to the sons. And so to be called a son of God is not only to be welcomed relationally by a God who loves us, although it is that, and that's glorious, it's also to be in line for his inheritance. And this is something that the Bible makes explicitly clear. In fact, if you go back to verse 11 we get the third mention of predestination, and it's in reference to this idea of inheritance. Ephesians 1.11, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, once again, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, in all of this talk, the constant emphasis is on God being the one who is in control. God being the one who is causing his will to be done. God being the one who graciously moves toward a people he loves to save and redeem so that we would be known as sons and daughters and so that we would inherit the riches due the Son of God. What is this inheritance? Well, the reference is to eternal life and everything involved with that. A life that is sin-free, temptation-free. Friend, can you imagine? Guilt-free, shame-free. The language of the book of Revelation, a, a life in which there is no more uh, sickness, no more crying, no more mourning, and no more pain. Everything about life that we hate, all the goodbyes, all the heartaches, are no longer a part of life. That's the negative. There's also the positive. It is a life where the joy of knowing freedom, boundless love, and deep connection to God, who is the fountain of all pleasures living out an endlessly purposeful and meaningful life together with him and with his people that's just scratching the surface of what the Bible talks about is the inheritance rightly due to Jesus Christ as the glorious son of God shared in him with all those who put their faith in him. That is your inheritance if you're a Christian. It's just my inheritance if I've trusted Christ for salvation. He says, I pray that you would see that deep down in the core of who you are. That that would become real to you, that you would become alive to that fact, because it is a fact. It is a fact. It was established by the heart of God. And I think that's really the impact of all this hope and inheritance talk. But just before we move to the third and final thing he prays for, just think about this practically for a second. If I see this, let's just say I do this. He's praying that Christians would really get deep down inside hope that God's called us to really get deep down inside the riches of the inheritance God has provided. What if, what if I did? What difference does that make? Does it make a difference? When we know at the core of our being that our status as an heir of God's glorious eternal life is a fixed and settled thing and has been from time immemorial, that radically changes your outlook on life. I mean, look again, verse 11. In him, we have obtained. It's past tense. It's over. It's finished. This thing is done. 
signed, sealed, delivered, over. And it has been done, here's where the really mind-blowing part comes in, it has been done from time immemorial. My destiny has been fixed in heaven from before time began. It was done in God's heart and mind before the world began. And what that means is it won't be altered, it won't be changed, it won't be taken away, no matter what I'm facing right now or no matter how much of a jerk I am. It was never dependent on me not being a jerk in the first place. This thing is much bigger than me. It goes back to eternity, and that is the sure and solid foundation of my hope, no matter what's blowing up around me right now. Friend, does predestination seem like a cold, hard, heavy, and uncomfortable thing? I pray that we'd come to see it more as a ballast, a weight in the keel of your life which keeps us upright in the tempest of pain. I'm not a huge maritime guy, but I know enough about big boats to know that they have ballast. They have weight down to the base of the keel, the very bottom of the ship. And that's what keeps them from tipping over when waves or other things come and hit them, especially if they hit them broadside. What keeps the boat up? It's got to have that heavy weight way down at the bottom. And the whole idea of God having chosen me from before the foundation of the earth sort of functions that way. Initially, it's, it's mind-blowing. Sometimes it's kind of humiliating. Like, I thought I had something to do with this. Like, wasn't I smart enough to figure God out? It's like, no. This was all the glory of God. And it's a wonderful thing because it will keep us anchored when doubts about where we stand with God threaten to overwhelm, when worry about the future threatens to overwhelm, when the pain and the frustration of living life in a sin-cursed, broken world threatens to overwhelm. What's weighing on you right now? Most. Like before you even think about it, just the first thing that pops into your head. A present pain, grief of loss, worry about something in the future, shame, guilt. How would your perspective changed if you were convinced at the core of your being of the certain future in God's presence that he called you to? and the riches of the inheritance he's ordained for you. Would knowing that that is your sure and certain future help you stay upright in that storm? It will. But see, I've got to know that deep down in the core. And that's what Paul prays for. This is a great thing to pray for ourselves and for other people that we would see that. And it gets better. It gets better. This is not just joy of a Christian's future. It's also God's impact on our lives in the present. That's the third and final point that we turn to right now. He finishes out the prayer in verse 19. He's prayed that we would see the hope to which he's called us, the glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Lastly, he says, I pray that you would see, that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, God's power toward us who believe. God is actively working in a Christian's life right now with a power that cannot be measured. And the problem is, oftentimes I don't see that. I don't feel it. I don't perceive it. I don't rely on it. I don't depend on it. It's a fact. This is not a prayer that God would show up and work in the life of a Christian. The assumption is he already is. This is a prayer that I, as a Christian, would actually see that, understand it, know it. In fact, he goes further. This is a power of God that is so great, it simply cannot be 
measure, the surpassing greatness, he says, of God's power. So he gives an illustration of just how much power we're talking about here. Verse 20, it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The power that takes a dead, lifeless body and raises it to life is pretty significant. That does not happen. Not unless it is supernatural. But you know what? It's amazing to think about a supernatural resurrection. There are a few of them in the Bible. Uh, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, Unfortunately for Lazarus, he got old and died again. Jesus was not only himself raised from the dead, he was raised not just to life, but to eternal life, never to die again. And what's more, he was also fully restored to his position in heaven as the universe's rightful king to rule and to reign. And the power of God that accomplished all of that, the Bible says, is at work in your life right now as I'm speaking if you have trusted Christ. That power? That's a lot of power. I can't imagine much more power. That's the point of the prayer. I pray that you would get it at the core of your being. I mean, let's be honest. Many times it does not seem like God's power is at work in us that way. I can think of a lot of things I could use a little resurrecting in my life. Come on, God. It's not like I haven't prayed about these things before. In fact, I'll take a step further. Maybe you don't get quite this jaded, I don't know, but like we can actually get jaded after a while. Have you ever had that experience of, of praying for something that, that you, you know it honors God, you know it's the right thing, you're not just being selfish. Maybe you're praying for victory of some sin in your own life or you're praying for God's good and salvation in the life of another person or something and you pray and you pray and you pray a thousand times and it doesn't happen. And then you read a passage like this, all oh, of his power, and you're like, why am I not seeing it? Maybe there's different octane ratings on God's power. Right, like the, the people like Jesus or maybe the Apostle Paul, they pull in, oh, they get the high octane stuff. They get to like raise people from the dead. I show up and God's like, oh, you, here, I'll be a little nice to you, but you know, your life's not gonna really change or anything. It could be like the little kid in the Polar Express. You guys ever seen that movie? <laughs> the little poor kid. I, Christmas just doesn't work out for me. Other people get presents, but not me. Christmas just doesn't work out for me. That's my mindset. God's power, it just doesn't work out for me. Maybe other people, maybe people that God really loves. Maybe spiritual giants, not me. You know, our experience might not actually be that unusual after all. Sometimes we have assumptions about what God's power operating in our lives is going to look or feel like. But you know, the Apostle Paul, the guy who's writing this prayer, asked God three times to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh. Not 100% sure what that is, probably some kind of physical ailment. doesn't matter. The point is, Whatever the thing was, it was deeply felt by Paul, perhaps physically and painfully felt, but even more to the point, it was, it was debilitating. In, in his mind, it limited his ability to get around and do ministry. So he's like, God, take it away. I mean, you have the ability, take it away. Make this thing go away from my life so that I can serve you more. And I, and I believe that was his genuine motive. That wasn't even just lip service to God. Like, I really want to serve you. This thing is a barrier stopping me. So God, would you take it away? And God didn't, and he asked again, and God didn't, and he asked again, and God didn't. Is God's power not at work in his life? No, some of you know the rest of the story. He finally realized, oh, wait a second. God's answer to my request was a no. No, I'm not going to take it away. Not because there isn't any power of God at work in a guy's life. Could God have taken away this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was? Of course he could have. 
But he didn't. Why not? Not because of a lack of power. God actually had to widen the Apostle Paul's perspective. Paul himself wrote honestly about this. So he had to widen my perspective. I had, a, I had a wrong view of the whole thing. I just saw this is a barrier to me serving you, God, take it away. God pulled back and says, I tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna keep you serving me in the midst of that. I'm gonna give you enough power to endure and to stay faithful even with this huge pack that you're carrying and that's gonna be just as much of a miracle as if I took the pack away. But the way he stated it to Paul, my power will be made perfect, made visible, made manifest in your weakness. So I'm going to give you the power to continue to sustain and live a faithful life and serve me. Oh, it's easy for people to say, anybody would serve a God that would just give them candy all the time and take all their problems away. When you keep loving and serving God and he doesn't take your problems away, that calls attention to the fact that there's something more than God about being, than, than just being a cosmic vending machine. It calls attention to the riches of his glory that are worth having even with the challenges of my life. If I go back to that boat analogy for a moment, if you can imagine a small fishing boat, 20, 25-foot boat, and it's out in just like hurricane storm, you know, 30, 35-foot walls of water coming all over the place, just any one of them will just swamp that thing and send it to the bottom. If you're on that boat, you're praying like crazy. It would certainly be a miracle if God just stopped the storm. Peace, be still, storm's gone, waves are dead, that's how I'm gonna save the boat. Would that be a miracle? That would be a miracle. Could God do it? Sure. Occasionally, he even does. Jesus did it on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and they were like, whoa. Maybe it's not a physical storm. Um, maybe it's that diagnosis. Maybe it's that loss. Maybe it's that persistent, deep character sin that just won't let go, and you're just praying, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. Could he? Yes. Does he? Yeah, once in a while. But you know what? That's not his normal M.O. More often, what he actually does instead is he keeps that little boat afloat in the tempest. Held upright by the weighty ballast of God's own sovereignty. So that in the morning, when the tempest has passed and everybody comes out of hiding and expects to see nothing but clear glass water, there's a little boat sitting out there on the horizon. It's a miracle! How did that thing make it through the storm? It's as big a miracle as if God just shut the whole thing off. God's power is alive and active in the life of a Christian. It doesn't always mean it'll go the way we want. This is a prayer that we would see it. We would experience it. We would respond to it. Friends, this whole prayer is that we would see and experience and live out God's power in us to keep us faithfully serving and trusting him even when the breakers are crashing over. He has the power to raise Jesus from the dead. He has the power to sustain his children through the worst of life in a broken world until we acquire full possession of our glorious inheritance seeing him face to face forever do we see that power us right now do we see that inheritance do we see that hope gotta be honest one of the reasons i love this prayer so much is it constantly pulls me back to a place where i have to say most of the time i don't this is reminding me that it's real but it's also showing me how to pray for myself how to pray for others I need this prayer constantly. So do you. Here's a thought. What if this week, every day, every member of this church just took a couple of minutes to pray according to this model for one person? 
every day for the next seven days. Let's just like try it. Just add it to whatever else you're praying. You don't need to change anything. What would it be like to, to find somebody that you know by name and pray for them? God, would you show this person deep down at the core of their being the hope that you offer in Christ, the glorious riches of the inheritance that you have for your people, and the surpassing greatness of your power to keep us faithful and overcome sin and temptation in our lives. Help them see that in a whole person way. God, that's something we can do. This is a prayer that's always timely and it's always needed. And as such, it's a great model for how to pray. When we don't know what to pray, we pray for perspective. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up here as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper, communion. Uh, being the fourth, fourth Sunday of the month, we come together at the Lord's table, and there's really two main reasons that we do this. Um, we eat the bread and we uh, drink from the cup. They each symbolize something. First of all, the bread uh, represents the broken body of Jesus. The cup represents his shed blood. And so there's a very specific meaning to this symbolic act of the Lord's Supper that we're going to engage in here together in just a few minutes. The first of all, the meaning is, is to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the Bible says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So by participating in communion, even though you're not using words, you are announcing Jesus Christ is my Savior and has died in my place. So that's what we do together as a church. But secondly, communion is also the way that we identify with one another as the people for whom Jesus is our Savior. The Bible also says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body because we partake of one bread. So we, we come together to constitute ourselves as a local church defined by the grace of Christ, not just individuals saved by grace, but a church community saved by the grace of Jesus. And so communion is the way that Jesus gave us to come together as a church and announce that we are his people, made one family by his sacrifice for our sins on the cross. If you're with us today and you haven't made a commitment to Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, we're really glad you're here. I would encourage you to just feel free to stay where you're standing during communion uh, and not partake of the elements. Uh, several of us will be available after the service in just a few minutes to talk with you if you'd like to talk more about uh, a relationship with Christ. But what's going to happen here is the worship team's going to begin playing uh, music for just a moment. We're going to have just a moment of kind of quiet reflection um, before we participate in communion. That's, that's just a chance to to pray through silently where you are and respond to whatever God may be leading you to. Uh, perhaps a prayer, like the one that we just saw together. Maybe a confession of sin, whatever it is. Just do business with God. And then uh, Claire will ask us all to stand and we'll begin singing. We've got three songs that we're gonna close our service with. At any time during those three songs, you can come forward. There's tables up here in front. There's two in the back. There's also some up in the balcony. You just come forward to the one closest to you, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. And we'll do that in memory of God's sacrifice together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your, the privilege of being a body defined by your sacrifice. I pray in these moments you'd help myself, my brothers and sisters here, to see truly your love for us, your power toward us, the hope and the inheritance you've given to us for our good and your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.